Welcome back to 24 Faithful. We are back to talk about season number three. We are now on the back half of the season, starting with episode number 13, and really starts to get even more interesting as we get in this. And so we pick up with Jack and Chase arresting Nina to bring her back to Los Angeles, where she then unleashes a computer worm on CTU, which fortunately Chloe managed to stop. And then Nina escapes while she's being questioned, but that is a short-lived adventure for her. And then we have the appearance and rise of Steven Saunders, which was one of Jack's team back in Operation Nightfall. He was a, a borrowed soldier from England or the UK. I don't know which is the proper term, but anyway. And so anyway, and so we get into all kinds of things here as we follow this new threat of the virus. But today, we don't have Bradley with us in the normal fashion. He is going to be replaced by my iPad. He wasn't able to make it with us live, and so he pre-recorded some comments that he had about this section, and so we're going to share some of those as we go through. But I am joined by Joel. So Joel, thank you for being with us today. Yes, we're, we we have sent out search and rescue looking for Bradley. We don't know where he's at, but we have sent out search and rescue. But I do want to get this out, Josh. I need to address one of the founders of the podcast, <laughs> Mr. Mark Sievercrop. Okay. Me and him had a little back and forth on Facebook the other day. And he mentioned that, you know, he was the, he was the founder of the podcast. And, you know, now he outsourced it to the hired help but he still has the founder tag. So we do all the work and he just keeps the founder's tag. First of all, Mark, let's get one thing straight, okay? I did all the work when you were here, okay? (laughs) So doing all the work now is nothing new to me, okay? Whenever you're done being the big shot with with the founder's tag, you can join us on the podcast anytime to join us little people. (laughs) I just wanted to get that off my chest. I do all the work anyway, Mark, okay? Grow some hair and then come talk to me. (laughs) Okay. I don't know about all that, but I love you, Mark. But anyway, that, that, that whole conversation (laughs) on Facebook started because Facebook reminded me that it was seven years ago that Mark and I were in all the preparatory stages for starting this podcast. And so it was somewhere around seven years ago when we launched it. And so kind of celebration for that and apparently bashing Mark at the same time, but it went off the rails. Yes, the podcast has gone off the rails since Mark left us, but we are trying to recover anyway. <laughs> anyway, let's get on with the show. So we have <laughs> one of the first things that we wanted to talk about, I guess in a way, starting on a high note, we have Jack Bauer carrying Nina back in an airplane. So I guess that's pretty high being up in there. But anyway, so we have Jack that is returning to Los Angeles with Nina after the whole debacle that happened with the virus exchange between Jack and the Salazars trying to acquire the virus. And Nina comes in as representing a second buyer and Nina wins the vote. And then there's the whole exchange between the two of them and it escalates. And then they're all played by uh, Amador. <laughs> so, so Michael Amador that basically sets them both up basically to get the money, kill them off, and then deliver the virus to somebody else. It's something Nina would have done, I'm sure, but Amador beat him out. And so Jack and Nina escaped. Jack could bring her back to LA, but in the process, Nina does what Nina does and deceived and was very dishonest in a lot of what she's doing. And she ended up setting off that virus or that worm back at CTU with the, by dialing a phone number. It reminds me, uh, I just recently watched Pirates of the Caribbean with my son. First time he's seen it, but there's that quote in there where Jack Sparrow says at least something to the fact of, you can always trust a dishonest man to be dishonest. And that is something that describes Nina to a T. You can always trust when you see Nina and she opens her mouth, it's probably going to be a lie. <laughs> or some sort of twist if there is a truth in there. But there's always a truth that's it's like my dad always told me there's a little kernel of truth in every lie. You just have to find it. 
And the thing about Nina is, it's really, really hard to find that kernel of truth. Well, well Jack found it. It was in the middle of her chest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he found it all right. It also brought about one of the few instances in the history of 24 when she caused a computer worm and basically caused all CTU systems to melt down. Which, first of all, why Jack just willingly took all these numbers from her and acted like it was supposed to magically stop everything as if Nina's this upstanding citizen, I'll never know, okay? But as CTU was melting down, you know, there's one person that Nina didn't account for, and that was Chloe. So they're going through all these motions of trying to get the system back up, and Tony is telling the plane to turn around and go back to Mexico and... Jack's got the pilot at gunpoint because that's what Jack does. Um, and in the 11th, in the final second, in true 24 fashion, Chloe gets everything back up and running. And Nina, of course, you know, she thinks she's got this well-laid plan. Everything's perfect. And then you see one of the few instances in 24 where you actually see Jack smile. <laughs> as creepy as that smile was, <laughs> it was a smile because <laughs> Jack knew that what Neil was trying to do and the fact that CT was able to thwart it, just you could see the, the elation on Jack's face. sweet. <laughs> and then she says, I don't believe you. And then Jack cracked that smile and says, I don't care what you believe. And then sat down right beside her <laughs> as if to rub it in her face <laughs> that they stopped the worm. And you could just see, Nina's whole heart drop. I'm willing to bet at that very moment, Nina knew she was dead. At that very moment, <laughs> Nina knew she was going to die. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mentioned Bradley uh, joining us via my iPad has some comments as well. And so, and, and for you listening, if you have any comments, we would love to be able to get your feedback as well. And you can send in audio as well if you call um, 405 one zero five six seven you can leave a message and we can be able to play that in the podcast as well but anyway so here's bradley it's really surprising that after all this time jack still manages to get duped by nina i mean she gives him the phone number to supposedly call marcus alvers and or to trace him and then it ends up launching a computer worm at ctu and you feel i feel like jack after all this time probably shouldn't have been so easily convinced into thinking that Nina was helping them. Um, she's betrayed them a lot in the past, obviously, and I don't think there's much reason to assume that she wouldn't hear. That being said, it's it's really fun. There scenes on the plane. Obviously, Chloe stopping the worm is really nice to see. And then we come to the next episode, and she's at CTU and being interrogated. I really love the interrogation scenes with Tony and sort of the occasional overarching, like, you know, the fact that it's all with Michelle and for Tony because obviously Tony and Nina have a past. And then, you know, you get the, the fun scenes of, of Nina, um, her vitals spiking because of Marcus Alva's uh, medical file and the comedy out of that. And then the escape scene, which is absolutely wonderful. It's so, so well constructed. You have that, that sort of great moment where she tries to kill herself and then instantly you kind of feel that something's going to happen and she fakes going into the going unconscious and tony i mean it's one of the iconic shots of season three actually tony coming out into the, the main ctu floor covered in blood i hadn't actually realized until i rewatched it the other day sort of how much blood was all over his shirt obviously sort of the the image of it um, covering his face is is there but i mean his, his shirt is absolutely soaked through with blood and yeah, Jack has to go, go and kill Nina in one of the greatest scenes that 24 did. You know, after all that we've, all the time we spent with Nina, all the time since the end of season one that we spent hating Nina, particularly season two and, and, and this season as well. And, you know, it almost doubles down on the, the, the awkward kiss that we talked about last week that we've had to suffer through this. We've had to endure this and cringe at this. And now we get to see what we want to see and that's Jack standing over Nina and deciding that no she's not going to be useful to us anymore she hasn't got information worthy enough for me to keep her alive and so she dies you know what it's one of my favorite scenes of season three and I think it's one of most people's favorite scenes of season three simply because everyone wants to get rid of Nina yeah 
it's actually my favorite scene of the entire series. <laughs> okay, not just season three. It's my favorite of the entire series. And, you know, since Bradley, which I'm sure Bradley will kick himself later knowing that the first 30 seconds of his diatribe was agreeing with basically everything that I said the first 30 seconds of my diatribe. But we'll ignore that. But since, <laughs> since he wanted to address the whole interrogation scene, I was going to get to that. Tony, he has this such raspy voice and but yet he also has some of the funniest one-liners that you'll that you'll hear but it's funny because it's you know that person has that dry sense of humor like it's funny but it's funny in a dry way that's tony and when he had when he had the interrogation with nina and he read off marcus Albert's medical file and you know somebody came into his ear saying that uh, her levels are spiking at the mention of the HIV test. And then he, and then he sits down and um, says, my colleagues in the other room tell me that, I'm paraphrasing here, that you're alarmed by something in uh, his medical files. And then he goes, I'm guessing it's not the knee. <laughs> and, and just the look on Nina's face was just priceless. And then... You know, it's kind of foreshadowing the moment Jack takes hold of Nina the first time in season three. Every time somebody tries to grab Nina and take her away to a plane or to an interrogation room, Jack is adamant she does not leave my sight. Or somebody that knows her has to be with her. And he kept making those comments throughout the time that he had Nina. And it was kind of foreshadowing because... When Nina, you know, jammed that needle in her in her neck to produce all that blood, and and then Tony runs down there just as Jack's being interrogated by Internal Affairs or whoever they were, <laughs> and then he walks into the room and Chappelle's like, "My God, Tony, <laughs> like what's going on?" And Jack and Jack just looks up, and Tony's explaining that Nina jammed that needle in her neck, and Jack immediately. His, his senses, his spidey senses, so to speak, go off. He's like, where is she? And then Tony's like, relax, Jack. She's getting worked on. Who, who's with her? Tony, who's with her? And then at the exact moment he says that, the alarm goes off. And in true Jack fashion, damn it. And then he just, <laughs> and then he just runs out to find her. It's that from the moment of Tony running down to the interrogation or to Jack's interrogation room with a blood soaked shirt all the way up until the moment Jack puts three bullets in her is one of my favorite sequences. Easy for me to say sequences of the entire series. Not to mention the fact that Nina got killed. (laughs) Kind of my favorite. Yeah. Yeah, definitely agreed. And, And it brings resolution coming back from the end of season one as well. So Jack finally getting that revenge for his wife's death. But, uh, but, but I wanted to look at one of the big reasons I definitely can't say the only reason, one of the big reasons why season three is one of my favorite seasons in 24. And so my overall listing, I listed season three, number two, I know Bradley put, season 3b so the part that we're talking about today as his second favorite as well i can't remember where you placed it um joel but i think i think i placed it like second or third yeah and so so it's definitely very high in there but one of the reasons for me is because of the character of steven saunders and when i think about saunders and i'm i'm looking at him and see what he does and the way he operates he is like a complete parallel he's a mirror image of jack is he's like he's like the uh the reverse flash or or, or whatever he, he's the negative of of jack bauer um in a sense it's it's what jack bauer could be if jack was on the opposite side of of the law or, or whatever and so could, could, just look at it. they both went through operation nightfall um had severe losses there they both lost their wives they're both very protective overprotective of their daughters and will do pretty much anything to ensure their safety and they're both very cunning they're they're very very good at detail planning as well as they're both masters at quick thinking when things go wrong um i mean they're they're, i mean they're they're like a perfect match for each other which i think is something that that really 
puts together all these pieces here as we, as we go through the second part of season three. Steve, at first, when I, I remember first watching this um, the season, when they introduced the character of Steven Saunders and they they introduced his backstory, the first thing that I thought was, okay, the writers are running out of ideas because we just did this Operation Nightfall in season one. And now they're bringing it back in season three as if there was, you know, some mystery survivor that has a vendetta against Jack and Palmer, much like the Drazens did in season one. But then as we got further along and we started to flesh out his characteristics, so to speak, and I started to think of exactly how much like Jack he actually is, it made me like him as one of probably my top three or four villains of the entire series, just because it seemed as if for a while, everything Jack thought of, Stephen had already thought of a plan to counter it, like the deal in Mexico. Stephen already knew about it, even though Michael Amador didn't tell him about it. Or when Michael Amador escaped and he got on the phone with Stephen, Stephen Saunders, and Saunders asked him flat out, was Jack Bauer one of the agents that was interrogating you? Michael Amador said, yes. Steven, being the smart guy he is, knows Jack's not just going to let somebody escape. So that's when he knew that Michael Amador was being tracked. So then he plants that bomb in Michael Amador's case, which effectively blows him to smithereens while Jack is watching. And then as Jack approaches the scene, he gets a phone call from Steven Saunders. So it's, it, it, it reminds me of kind of like what you said of the reverse Flash. But it also reminds me of another Flash villain called the Thinker. Everything that Barry tried to do to stop the Thinker, the Thinker already had a plan to stop him. That's kind of a parallel of where I see Steven Saunders because every time Jack thought he had a read on him, Steven already had a plan and already had a plan to counter it. Every time Jack got a leg up, Steven would kick his other leg out from under him. <laughs> it was kind of a tit-for-tat kind of thing where it was more of a game of one-upsmanship for a good portion of it until they got down to the nitty-gritty. And I thought that was something that Jack didn't really have a lot of because a lot of his villains were just, you know, kind of smash mouth, I want to blow up the world and I don't care what it takes, you know, kind of thinking. But Stephen had a methodical plan that he was that he was trying to carry out. It wasn't just about mass hysteria or mass panic or mass destruction for him. He had a plan, and he was not going to execute the end game of that plan until the entire plan had played itself out. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, he's he's definitely very masterful in his in his playing. He's like a chess player. He's like one of those master chess players that he's already thinking whatever 27 moves ahead. And he has the advantage also of knowing what his opponent's going to do to be able to be able to do that. Yeah. He's, he's very masterful of that, of course. And actually this guy comes back to the other part of that quote I had earlier from the Pirates of the Caribbean, where uh, Captain Jack Sparrow said, you can always trust an dishonest man to be dishonest and he says you gotta watch out for the honest one because you never know when they're gonna do something completely stupid because i mean it's like you think you can predict what they're gonna do and then they do something totally different and of course jack bauer does that he finally catches him off guard and it turns the tide but that's coming next week anyway so kind of flash forward to that but one of the things that saunders did early on in his in his power play here is he releases a virus inside the Chandler Plaza hotel. There's a lot of times when we have these uh, terrorists that come on the scene on, on the show and maybe other shows or whatever. It's like they give a warning shot, like flash forward to season seven where they get the CIP device early on. And they had the warning shot where two planes almost collide. They like everyone loses control of their stuff. The two planes almost collide. It's like, okay, there's a warning shot. Okay. The next time, it's not going to be just a warning shot. Well, this is his warning shot where he actually infects the, the the whole building. It's insane the way he does that. But actually, I'm getting ahead of myself here a little bit. Bradley had some thoughts. Um, Saunders, and then we'll get back here to the Chandler Plaza. So part of the reason I'd always split season three into two very distinct halves, 3A and 3B, 
cut it at YN. And the reason I do that, and the reason I then ranked season 3B as one of the top seasons of 24 up there with season 5, is Paul Blackthorne and the way that he portrays Stephen Saunders and the way that Stephen Saunders created his character. I mean, Blackthorne comes in and, I, I, you know, I think he's the best villain performance apart from Gregory Itzin as Logan in season five and season eight. You know, he, he comes into the room with Michael Amador in that first episode and he's instantly the calmest man on the show. And he's equally the most menacing and somehow the most aggressive and threatening and all of this. And, and instantly he comes in and you see that Michael Amador and Marcus Alvarez are actually scared of him. You know, these guys, we see Alvarez obviously released the vial at the hotel and Amador, all of his stuff. And, you know, how calm and relaxed and calculated he was in the, the sale of the virus to the Salazar's and to Nina. Amador is scared of him. And we see that when Jeff interrogates him as well. He would rather die and be affected with the virus or whatever than give up Saunders. That's how scared he is of him. And understandably so, Saunders does kill him when he tries to, to get his help to escape. But you look at Paul Blackthorne and it's just, it's so wonderful watching him. Every single scene, every single scene that he's in is just a joy. Even sort of the horrible ones where, you know, we'll, we'll come on to his demands to Palmer in a bit, but, you know, his calls to Palmer is chatting with Austin kids, his closest associate. Everything is so menacing and so calculated and so specific. And it's not until when we talk about next week, you know, the Jane Saunders stuff, that it's not until then that he sort of becomes a little bit unhinged. And when his plan stopped going to plan, that's when he becomes a little bit chaotic. But here, where he's planned out everything, every little step perfectly, He's just so, so good to watch. Yeah. yeah. I, I, begrudgingly, I will agree with Bradley on that. <laughs> <laughs> I completely forgotten because, you know, during the season one and season two podcast, I would point out the, you know, little actors that I've seen on other shows like NCIS and stuff like that. The first time that I remember seeing Paul Blackmore is uh, in Arrow as the um, Quentin Lance and then it wasn't probably because he had hair in 24 <laughs> and he was bald in Arrow. So I didn't remember that he was actually the character that played Stephen Saunders in, in 24 season three, probably because he had hair. But his acting is so masterful because he has that calm and soothing voice. Even when he's, aside from, of course, you know, later in the season when Jack threatens to kill his daughter. Other than that, you know, even when he's angry or upset, his voice never raises. It's always at an even keeled kind of a, a, okay, I have everything thought out kind of way. And, or that's not going to be a problem or I have a solution for that problem. And that's what makes him. The other one that pretty much had that same demeanor was Khabib Marwan. You know, they both have that calm, even-keeled demeanor, even when things may be going left or they may be going wrong. They never let it show in their actions as far as how they react vocally. And so we're going to get back to the Chandler Plaza Hotel here. We got something here from Bradley as well on that. He actually has two things here on it, so we'll split them up, though, talking between. Jesus. I think this is the most horrific and bleak the show ever gets. I mean, some of the shots in this, you know, the, the shots of the isolation area when sort of five, 600 people are infected with the virus. The conversations that Michelle has with Tony about the suicide capsules and then the speech she gives to the infected ones about the suicide capsules and the fact that it's a 100% mortality rate. And then the sadness of seeing the old couple when the the capsules arrive and Nicole offers them up and the fact that it's this this old couple the, this pair in their 70s or 80s or however old they are that are the first ones to come forward and decide that they want to end their life and they don't want to suffer this anymore and you know you end up seeing a lot of people come through I don't know sort of this is the only shot we get of it that first time when they arrive I don't know how many people took it I don't know how many people decided that they were just going to suffer I imagine actually that a lot of them did take the pills because, you know, we see Gael's death and it's horrible. 
and it's fairly quick for him. I think it takes about an hour and 20 minutes from us seeing him infected to us seeing him on the gurney. It's fairly quick in that sense, but it does just look horrific every time we cut back to it. It's, you know, he, he's coughing more violently. He has more lesions on his skin and is more covered in blood. And, you know, that's that final scene where Tony, where, uh, sorry, where Michelle goes and sees him and they have that conversation and she offers his gun and he's against suicide. You know, there will be people like that in the hotel. But you see Gael and you see his struggle in that scene and how weak he is and just how much you can see, even from our perspective, that we wanted to end. You know, I couldn't imagine actually being that character, feeling that stuff. When I'm sat here thinking, I, I just, I, I just, I just don't want him to keep on suffering like this. So yeah, it, it, it's really, really bleak. It's really, really awful to watch, and yet so well made. You know, it, like I say, it's. I don't want to look at it, but I also can't take my eyes off it. We have that guy Elsie, I mentioned. It's backed by one of the most beautiful scores that Sean Callery ever did. So even you know, Twenty Four is so good at even in these moments of absolute horror and like the worst the show could get in terms of um, you know brutality this actually still manages to be one of the best sequences and the best run of, of scenes and episodes that they did I think um, you know it's, it's the harsh reality of this threat I don't you know they had to have this you couldn't just have oh we'll infect the channel father and then we'll leave it no, no no we have to see the impact of this virus we have to see how bad it is to fully understand that no no Saunders is a horribly dangerous person and this is what he's inflicting and this is what he's going to do to the rest of the country I think we need that yeah. I see why Bradley broke it up into two parts now <laughs> but he's right he's right Gael you see certain characters and this has been prevalent throughout the whole 24 series you see certain characters at the beginning of the season Paula from last season comes to mind having an important role in the day's events as the season progresses. But you know pretty much guaranteed that they're not going to make it to the end of the season. Like they had, they, they established these characters in the beginning as having important roles in the day's events. But you can tell that they're kind of lame duck characters. Like those are characters that are either going to get be a mole, written off, killed. One of those scenarios. Um, Paula comes to mind from season two. Gael is another one in season three. He had, like I said, his redemption arc kind of came out of nowhere. Like if you were watching the season for the first time, you would be like dumbfounded that Gael in one, at the end of one episode, he's got a gun on Jack's daughter. And then at the end of the other episode, all of a sudden he's working undercover to stop the virus. So it's, it's kind of a big twist, but after, once the truth was revealed, and once, you know, we started to know that Gael is on the right side of this, he started to become a little bit more of a likable character. And the, like the, the conversation he had with uh, Michelle in the car on the way to the Chandler Plaza Hotel, where he basically said, you know, how much Tony wanted to tell her about what was going on, but knew he couldn't. And it's little conversations like that. You can tell that in the short time span after... You know, even before that, you could tell that him and Michelle had kind of formed a bond because Michelle was going to leave everything to him so she can go to the hospital to see Tony. So you could tell that even before that, they had formed that kind of a kind of a little bond. You could tell that she could confide in the guy. So his death was kind of meaningful in that way, because in a short time period, even more so than Paula, in the short time period, Gael had kind of become a very likable character to the point where you did care that he died, which I thought was one of 24's strong suits, at least early on, where they did a good job of building up these supporting characters so they meant more when we, when they killed him. <laughs> so I thought that, and that was a good way to have meaningful deaths without really killing off too many of your core characters. I mean, other than season five when they just kill everybody. But Gael was instrumental in, in probably having Michelle come down a little bit 
from the anger that she felt towards Tony. Um, and then once, you know, when he infected himself with the, with the virus, which one of the, one of the worst scenes of the entire uh, season was when he, he was at the virus and you saw the virus explode out and it went right in his face. At that moment, you knew guy was going to die. Even before it happened, you knew he was going to die. And I agree with Bradley. His death was kind of one of the uh, more gruesome deaths that I remember seeing as far as the ugliness to it. You know, most deaths are kind of just quick and, you know, it's done. But his was kind of drawn out and long and, you know, the kind of difficult to look at <laughs> in some respects with the lesions and the blood and everything like that. And, uh, but he was probably one of the more forgotten characters in the series, but he, um, he did make quite of an impact in the short amount of time that he was actually there. Yeah, definitely. And so I, I was thinking the same thing because you, you look at the character arc, you get the first six episodes to where you don't really like Gael because it seems like he's a CTU agent that's working for the terrorists. And, and and then it comes to the show that, okay, he's not working for the terrorists. He's playing the terrorists and kind of luring, luring them along. It's like, okay, well, okay, or I, could, I can get behind him. And so, so then you start to like it. And then we get to this part here and it's like, it's like right away his, I mean, and he, he's right there. He's, he's like, okay, I'm going to go there. I'm going to go to the action. I know there's danger. And I mean, when they, when they went to the plaza, they were told not to enter. But they, but Michelle's like, okay, I'm going in anyway. If any of you want to come in, you're welcome to do so. You don't have to, potentially life or death. But she goes in, they all go in. And so, yeah, I mean, he, he really puts his own life on the line that way. And I mean, and then he's the one that finds the the, the virus right there and that powder and, and all that. And, and of course, he's sitting there blaming himself because he hesitated. But I think pretty much any of us would have hesitated when we're confronted with it. It's like, okay, what do I do? And then all of a sudden, boom. And yeah. It, as soon as you start to get to like him, they kill him off. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so we have going along the lines of Saunders and his evil scheme and things like that. So, so not only do we have Jack and I mean, all of CTU is trying to track down all the information they can about Saunders and be able to get him. They're trying to track him down. And of all the people that's making progress, the one that's making the the best progress probably at the time is Chappelle. So he's digging into financial records, which apparently is like his thing. Apparently out, out of everything they do, he, he could do uh, financial tracking. But anyway... But he starts getting too close, and Saunders is like, okay, I can't get caught, so I need to get this guy out of here. And it's terrible. What has to go through, and of course, Chappelle, he's, he, he tries, to, tries to get out, pretending like he wants to go smoke a cigarette, but, uh, but he's just trying to escape because, I mean, he doesn't want to die, it would, which is understandable. But, but yeah, I mean, the, just that whole scene, it, when he finally does go, it's, it's obviously one of the, the few silent clocks that we have. I think it's the fourth silent clock, if I was counting correctly. So there's the one at the end of season one with Terry's death. And then there was the one with George Mason in the middle of season two. And then for President Palmer at the end of season two, then we have this one. And so again, I mean, it, Chappelle is one of those. His character arc went two and a half seasons. So it's not as quick as Gael. It's like through season one, season two, you don't really like the guy. At the beginning of season three, you still don't really like him too much, but they start to really ramp up. Oh, okay, this is someone I can like. And boom, <laughs> take him out. I think it was even sadder with Chappelle because, because George Mason, he had a little bit of notice that he was going to die, a little more than Chappelle did. But George was able to reach out to his son, try to patch some things up and try to like, as the saying goes, get his house in order. So he's trying to get things set up and all that kind of stuff. And George has a sad story. He doesn't have a whole lot of connections, a whole lot of relationships, but he's got a few. And then you get Ryan and he's there at the end. And Jack's like, is there anything or anyone we need to contact and we need to talk to? And he starts going through. He's like, no, there's no one. 
And so for Chappelle, he had, because I, I would assume because of his personality and the way he is, he just drove everybody away in his life. Anyone that could have had any special meaning. And he's sitting here and he's like, I have no one. And so he's like, the only people that are going to cry for me are the good people watching this show. But, but yeah, it, it's very, very tragic um, thing that he had to go through. But the one thing that George had that Chappelle didn't have was a chance to make amends. You know, because like you said, George had a little bit more notice. He knew he was going to die. So his biggest adversary through the one and a half seasons before he died was Jack. So he made amends with Jack in that conversation up on the plane. Chappelle didn't really have a whole lot of time to make amends with the people that he's that he's wronged. His death was you kind of started to warm up to him because even at little bits and pieces through season three, you could tell that he was by the book, like he was very strict, protocol, whole nine yards. But you saw little glimpses of the man behind the bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. The man that, you know, has a a little bit of a heart. Yeah. But you know, he has one in there. Yeah, the whole thing was suicide pills. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I even go back to the interrogation with Jack when he tries to tell the lady to, okay, let's say he started doing heroin in late January. So it lines up a little bit better with the story, you know, trying to help Jack out. And Jack was like, no, I want to do this, do it as is. I don't want any discrepancies. When he lets Chloe out, you know, after he has her locked up because she doesn't know how to tell the truth. Chappelle had these little these little moments where you started to see that maybe there was somebody behind the mask, so to speak. The facade that he was putting on as as um, you know the man in charge. And I would have liked to have seen that fleshed out a little bit more, you know, maybe another season or so. But like Gael, by the time we got around to start to like the guy, they kill him off. <laughs> so you don't get the chance to warm up to him. And maybe that's by design. I don't know. I don't know the writers. Maybe that's by design. But you don't get a chance to warm up to the guy before Jack puts a bullet in the back of his head. I thought the side of the clock was okay. But given the scenario and the circumstances around it and the fact that Chappelle didn't really have a chance to become that character, I thought that that solid clock perhaps could have been used somewhere else. Like, um, did Gael get a solid clock? He didn't get a solid clock, did he? Well, yeah, that would have been. I probably, I probably would have used that on Gael as opposed to Chappelle. Yeah, I can see that. Like, as Michelle's walking away from Gael and do silent clock is, is that because because that's when they did it with uh mason is as he was walking out of ctu not when he actually died but when he was walking out of ctu there was that silent clock right there but yeah 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 definitely now, now there's one other thing that um is a big part of uh what affects going on going forward in in the plot line on the palmer side of things and we we started alluding to it last week where president palmer brings in sherry to quote unquote fix um, his problem with uh, Alan Milligan and and Sherry convinced I try to evaluate her negotiating skills and her persuasion skills. It's like she has not. It's like she can persuade somebody. I mean, she persuades David that she can handle the situation, but she gets in there and it's like she totally cannot handle when situations go bad. It's like instantly she turns to <laughs> manipulation and everything is about manipulation. That quote from before, a dishonest person, you can always trust to be dishonest. And that is her. It's like is whatever she can do to protect herself. Yeah, she wants to help David. She wants to take care of this as long as she gets taken care of in the process. If her livelihood, if her safety, if her name, whatever, is on the line, the other stuff can go out the window over and over and over through season one, season two. And we see it here as well. Sherry is a very complicated character because she always paints this picture. Like everything she does is for the good of David's presidency. That's how she paints it. But yet everything that happens always has a Sherry motive behind it. 
like in season in season one, where she said everything she did was for David's presidency. But in the process, she almost got Jack's daughter killed. In season two, season two was the only difference because her goal at first was to bring down his presidency. But then in season three, I guess because it was three years later, in season three, suddenly she wants to do everything she can to protect his presidency. I still believe in your presidency, David. Well, you didn't believe in it three years ago when you tried to bring it down. <laughs> so it's Sherry is, is good at, she'll be an excellent politician because she's good at making you believe the lies. Even though you know she's lying, she still is able to make you believe the lie even though you know she's lying. That's how good she is sometimes. But her one downfall is never enough to just do what needs to be done. You always have to go that extra mile. Like with, with, with Milliken, the Ju- Julia, you know, from my recollection, was ready to come forward with, with everything that was going on with, with Alan, with the, with the, the scandal, the, got his got a cell phone, everything like that. From my recollection, you know, the way I perceived it was that she had gotten Julia to agree to do that. So then here comes Alan out arguing and yelling and getting excited and man has a heart attack. So instead of letting Julia get him his medicine, because apparently Sherry has what she needs to come forward with this or to help David. But that's not enough. She has to kill the man. She has to let the man die, too. That's, and that, and she would have just left. Because when Alan first came out to talk to Julia, he had not seen Sherry yet. So Sherry just could have kept walking, left. That would have been it. But the fact that she stopped and she looked, and then once they locked eyes with each other, the argument started. And it's not enough for Sherry to get what she needs or to do what needs to be done. She has to go that extra mile. And in this particular case, that extra mile cost her and ultimately also cost David. Yeah, I mean, that that very interaction cost three people's lives in the course of the season, plus a presidency. So very costly uh, mistake right there in the moment. And yeah, anyway, so... On that downer of a note of Sherry, we have a lot of things coming up next week as we wrap up the last six episodes of season number three. And so we're going to come back. If you have any any feedback yourself as, as you're listening or watching through or just your memory going back to what you saw years ago on 24, send it in. Or you want to tell me how much of a great job I'm doing? Yeah, if... if there, that one person wants to do that that would be fine <laughs> i got somebody you got some. <laughs> do you have another profile on facebook that you're just gonna send in yourself <laughs> oh anyway so so anyway we missed having bradley with us in uh in person but we did have a couple of things from him um, he did have two other clips i'm gonna share them after we close out here just for for us being able to move on but i did want to share those Uh, So you can be able to listen to that if you want to continue listening after we close here. But otherwise, we're going to be back next week. Uh, Go to 24faithful.com, and you can check out everything there. Uh, You can leave us feedback there. You can also check out the the fan fiction novel that several of us wrote uh, a couple years ago coming out there, actually following the events of Season 9, Live Another Day. So, So you can check that out if you would like. And otherwise... Look forward to talking with you next week. I really love the Tony and Michelle stuff involved in this. I really love the way that Michelle handles herself. You know, you can see instantly that she's got that background in crisis management. She's fantastic at it. And I love the emotion around it. You know, they have had these problems throughout the day and they managed to tiptoe around the idea of Michelle dying. They don't really address it very much in these, this set of episodes that we're talking about here. But yeah, it's so nice to see them talking about it every so often and getting on with their jobs. And, you know, it's hanging over them. And we know that Michelle will eventually live. But at the time, you watch it and think, well, Michelle could die. Of course she could. She's in this hotel. She could get infected. And we've got no idea of how this is going to turn out. So to have that hanging over you, I, I think that, that works really well. And just in terms of the crisis management, I mean, fun fact to you, Danny, the guy that Michelle shoots at the end of 4 till 5 a.m., 
It's the only confirmed on-screen kill by Michelle. So all that time, I think Rico's in about 60-odd episodes when you combine two to five. And um, yeah, she kills, or she's confirmed to kill on-screen one person. And it's an innocent civilian who decides to try and escape the Charles Plaza Hotel. And she has to kill him because she can't risk an outbreak. That's, I mean, that's just a harrowing, harrowing fact. And it, it's really sad to think about because Michelle being so, so good. Rico Islesworth, of course, being so fantastic throughout this run. But Michelle, such a good agent, such a loyal agent, such an honourable agent. And our only sight of her killing someone is this unfortunate fellow who decided he was going to try and escape without knowing the fact. Um, Say so it just adds to the, the bleakness of everything at the Charlotte Plaza Hotel. So the conversations between Stephen Stormland and David Palmer are some of my favourite scenes in the show. I hang on every word because, as I said before, Paul Blackthorn is so, so good. I mean, the disrespect that Saunders has for David Palmer, you know, the whole Palmer sort of alludes to the fact that he won't accept any demands. And Saunders just says, uh, of course, you don't negotiate with terrorists. Well, I don't negotiate with heads of state, so just do as you're told. You know, this is the most powerful man in the country. But Stephen Saunders is talking to him like he's a 10-year-old. You know, it's utterly incredible to watch. And... I think, you know, these scenes really highlight how pure evil Saunders is. I mean, we know this for many reasons. He released a deadly virus in the hotel at the Children's Plaza Hotel. But ultimately, the key thing for me is these demands, and particularly the demand to kill Ryan Chappelle. Because you look at his his demands, there are four of them. The first one is the phone, which is key to their conversations. The second one is the press conference, which shows that Saunders has control. The last of them is the spies list, and ideologically, he doesn't like the USA. And he wants to expose them. This is part of his master plan. You know, the virus is a means to an end. He wants certain things to happen. One of those certain things is to identify the spies working in foreign countries. And and so the virus enables him to do that. Fantastic. But the third demand, Chappelle's kill, is complete self-preservation. Chappelle, as we'll learn um, in the first episode that we talk about next week, is getting very close with his money trail investigation and... That will lead to Jane Saunders. And obviously, Stephen Saunders can't have his daughter being discovered because that's leverage against him. Again, we know that that ends up happening. But that's the thing. So Chappelle being killed, the order for Chappelle to be killed, is simply out of self-preservation. It's simply so that Saunders can remain free and that he can remain in power against David Palmer. And I think that just highlights how bad he is. And, you know, it's not even... if, If, say, Chappelle had been involved with Operation Nightfall and Saunders wanted revenge, that would make sense. At least, okay, fine. You come back. You want revenge against the USA. And part of that is you want to kill someone who was involved in the operation that left you tortured in a Bosnian prison for years. Fine. But the fact that Chappelle's kill, and we see in the next episode that it's just, okay, it's him. Get rid of the body. Don't care. That's it. Just gone. Just I just want him disposed of. And, yeah, it's really, really savage and I, lo- I love seeing how how evil he is equally the episode where Chappelle is killed incidentally Ian Toynton who directed uh, Chappelle's final episode also his first episode was Mason Flying Plane so he had, uh, this was his last episode as well so he sort of bookended his time on 24 10 episodes he directed the first of them being the, be- the best episode of the show with Mason and his last being this one which is a very similar tone you know, one of our own agents is dying. Very different circumstances, of course. Um, but typically, typically well-directed. And it's so sombre. You know, the almost heroic, triumphant scene at CTU where Chloe's found Saunders. And, you know, I, I get chills every time I watch it. Jack runs through CTU to tell Ryan that there's a good chance he's going to live because Chase is going to go and take the strike team and they're going to get Saunders and everything's going to be fine. And then the stark reality of oh no oh no 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 no. that's not where Saunders is and sort of the not panic but the acceptance that just comes over Ryan's face when Chase says it's just a switching node the you know he closes his eyes and you can just see him realize oh okay I'm dying in the next five minutes and you know it breaks up Jack it breaks up Chappelle Paul Schultz is magnificent you know we, we've spent so long hating Chappelle for his bureaucracy but in these final moments he's he's just another guy and he's just like everyone else he doesn't want to die he's going like, to be killed by his own agent and he's absolutely terrified and the final interaction between Jack and, and Chappelle is is great and you just feel sorry for him you know he, he's got a brother that he hasn't spoken to in years and apart from that doesn't have that many friends it's so sad and say so Chappelle has 
sort of redeemed himself a little bit over the last four or five episodes. That the the great scene where he tells Tony to do it, to break the regulations about the suicide capsules. Fantastic. I think that's sort of the moment that I, I love him. But just to, for all that we've hated him for so long, to see him so vulnerable and so exposed moments before he gets killed and, and, and the horror that, that comes with that, it, it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. And I really, really love that episode. Somehow it seems sort of classic Sherry to kill someone to solve a problem. It's the first time it happens, but it feels very predictable and it feels like, oh, okay, Sherry killed someone to try and help David solve his problem. Yeah, that sounds right. That sounds like something that she would do. It's rather incredible how they've built up this character of Sherry to this point where actually murder is something that seems fairly reasonable for her. It's not shocking. It's not, oh, Sherry's got crossed the line. No, 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 no. She lives permanently on that side of the line. This is this is her. This is very much her. This is why David always calls her in to do the dirty work. It's not what he wanted her to do. Obviously, he didn't want uh, Alan Millican to die, but he brings her in knowing full well that this is the kind of thing that she does. This is the, the, the dirt that she can dig up, and the approach that she has is very much outside of the law, and anyone who gets in her way will end up paying, essentially. And that's what happens. Alan dies, and it ends up causing a chain of events that will eventually derail David Palmer's presidency, because Sherry does this to try and help David, and, and you know, when she goes to the Millican household, portrays it as, I'm helping you, Julia. Uh, I'll help you escape from your husband. You want to get out of Alan's thumb. You want his money, though. So this, But this is the way out. He's going to die. And this is the way out. We say that it was an accident. He was a frail old man. Couldn't get his medicine. Had a heart attack. Died. Oh, look, you're free. You've got the house. You've got his estate. You've got all the money. You can do whatever you want. You can go to Wayne. You can go be with the man that you love. Fantastic. Except she doesn't do this to help David and Julia. Or at least not from the moment that it could blow back on her. As soon as she's informed that Julia said something to the police and that she might be a suspect, she goes and tells David the truth. Fantastic scene. Absolutely fantastic scene of <laughs> Penny Johnson Gerald cynically almost saying about how everyone's always protected you from the truth, told you what you wanted to hear. Well, I'm going to tell you the truth. And, and David David's, uh, David's reaction of, thank you, relief. Finally, someone's going to tell me the truth. And then, really, he didn't want to know the truth. As soon as he found it out, no one wants to know that. But the second that Sherry has this potential of, of being arrested, she throws David under the bus. She forces him into lying to the police chief about her whereabouts at the time of Alan's death, because otherwise she's going to take David down. What was it? Uh, all necessary measures was the, the phrase that she used. And we go back to season one saying oh, you can't do this without me, when he left her at the end of the season. And now we've gone from that, from Sherry sort of triumphing her own power and her own relevance, her own importance, to now, if you don't back me on this, you will go to prison. Bringing in Sherry was the worst thing we talked about last week, worst thing that David could have done. And he's already starting to pay for it. 